It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Here on the podcast, if you, dear listener, are joining us for the very first time, or conversely, if you are a longtime listener, you know that one of our very favorite subjects to explore here is the concept of mental health and emotional wellness. It's one of the foundational elements of why we started This Might Get Uncomfortable. It's one of the foundational elements of why we started our brand Wellivator. And one of the things that Whitney and I are absolutely passionate about in figuring out what that means for not only us on an individual level, but on a global level, how do we address mental health and emotional wellness? And our guest today, Nick, is an incredible therapist based out of Los Angeles. And, you know, Nick, I want to start off with just really maybe a macro kind of huge question here. Whitney and I like to pass around articles about health and wellness and, and mental health. And an article I shared with her the other day was really alarming to me. It was an article about the suicide rates in Japan and that in October of 2020, the suicide rates in all of Japan exceeded the total number of people that had passed away from COVID. And it was just really a wonderful deep dive into interviewing people that were working on the front lines of mental health and emotional wellness in Japan, trying to get to the root of why there are so many people taking their own lives. And I know this might be a pretty heavy thing to start the podcast with, but I guess my question and the kickoff for all of us here in this episode is we talk about the fourth wave. It's kind of said that the fourth wave of the pandemic will be increased rates of depression, increased rates of suicidal ideation, strained relationships, and, and sort of the mental and emotional toll that, that COVID has taken and will continue to take as we wrestle with this. I'm curious in your practice, Nick, and your own personal life as a therapist, how does this resonate with you? What kind of things have you seen just maybe doing your own research or working with people? And does this potential fourth wave concern you? Not particularly on its own. Obviously, everyone is really struggling and suffering in this pandemic, but people are also really learning to adapt in this pandemic as well. And so it seems to me that, of course, there is emotional fallout from this, but there's also a lot of therapy, a lot of resources available, a lot of ways to work and live and love virtually that are available to people. And so my hope is that people will avail themselves of the resources that are out there for themselves. In a country like the United States, where, you know, fortunately, there's not an enormous stigma against mental health care, at least in a lot of communities, people are taking care of themselves. And I work every week with people who are doing what they can to get through this crisis. What do you think is underneath this stigma? This is something Whitney and I have talked about in, in multiple episodes in our, you know, kind of individual struggles with anxiety, clinical depression, suicidal ideation. We, we've gone deep down this rabbit hole. And it, it's interesting to me to think about constantly looking for new tools. And it, it feels like one of the most challenging parts of, I don't know, working on ourselves is when we do something for a certain period of time and it works, right? And we're like, okay, I'm feeling better. This seems to be, you know, making some strides in terms of how I feel on a mental and emotional level, but then it stops working. 
And I'm curious for you, you know, when someone comes to you or when you work with people and they're like, I've been trying this thing for a long time, it just doesn't seem to be working anymore. What's the process of experimentation in terms of people working on their mental health? I mean, certainly there's therapy and I want to talk about the style of therapy that you do. But then there's, you know, eating and supplementation and exercise and endorphins and neurotransmitters. It it seems that just the topic of mental health is such a multidimensional, complicated thing that even for me, as someone who's been going to therapy for six years and trying to optimize my food and my intake and all these things, I still struggle with it. It's like, I have all these tools. Why am I still struggling with this thing? Well, the experimentation part of it is an enormous part of the actual therapy itself. And I, you know, to be clear, I only see people who are coming to me because something that they love doesn't work. I actually have this, um, with the new therapist that I supervise, I have this sort of paradoxical theory that I use. And it's effectively that if a person comes into my office and tells me, I really need a lot of assignments, I need a lot of homework, man, I need worksheets, you know, I want want you to give me action items, that person probably just needs to learn to be able to sit in their feelings and have a discussion and a relationship. Because in their lives, they're probably giving themselves worksheets and assignments and tasks all the time. And for some reason, that's not working. And that's causing this distress that's bringing them into therapy. Conversely, when somebody comes to me and says, oh, you know, I just need a place to vent for an hour a week, then that tells me that that person probably needs to be assigned homework because they're probably venting in a lot of parts of their lives. And they're probably sort of emotionally unloading in a lot of parts of their lives and they're not seeing the change that they want to see. And so in those moments, I really try to stir those people into action. When you say the word homework, it elicits a pretty interesting reaction, probably because I, I might have some, uh, <laughs> some trauma over homework. But when you say homework, what does that mean? Do you mean actual, you know, writing exercises and journaling, or do you mean actual like physical things that, you know, give give me a little insight into what you mean by homework? Well, a lot of times it is writing exercises because writing is such a powerful tool for introspection and for change. I would be loath to uh, assign somebody physical activity just because that's outside of my scope of practice. But a lot of times it's uh, introspection, writing exercises, um, planning is a huge one that I end up working on with clients. And as coaches, you may this may resonate with you too. One of the enormous things that stands in people's ways is that they're just disorganized. I sense from the incredible checklist that you sent me that that's not a problem that the hosts of this podcast have. But people at large in the world often really struggle with having a million things that they want to do, having the tools to do it, and then just not having the structure in place to accomplish those things. But really, one of the great things about therapy is being able to be creative. So the homework assignment oftentimes is going to be whatever my intuition in the moment tells me will be most helpful for that person. It is really interesting because we have a program called the Consistency Code that we designed for this exact challenge that we saw so many people facing which was that it wasn't that they didn't know what to do or they didn't have the information or strategies or whatever they needed to make changes in their lives. It was that they really struggled with being organized and staying consistent. And I'm constantly amazed just hearing all these different stories and just noticing how much people struggle, myself included, even though I can be very organized and on top of things, I still have times where I forget things or I simply just don't want to do them. And sometimes that's because I'm really overwhelmed and burnt out. And I think that that's a huge issue. It's an incredibly common thing. Like the word burnout is used so frequently. And it often makes me wonder that, like, what are the roots of that? Where is this all coming from? Is this just that society has set us up to be overachievers and that we're 
constantly pushing ourselves and then we realize we've taken on so much more than we can handle. How do you come across this with the people that come to see you? Well, I think in a lot of ways as a culture, we've really sort of fetishized burnout. I think a lot of us wouldn't know how to feel like we were doing enough unless we were burnt out. I see that, you know, across the board. And we really reward it too, right? Like your boss is going to love you if you work 80 hours a week. There are fields like attorneys where, you know, if you want to make it in a lot of cases, you're going to be expected to, you know, just work your fingers to the bone for a really long time in order to sort of grasp the brass ring, which is cool if the brass ring by itself can make you happy. And in my experience, for most people, that's not the case. So I think that a lot of us are actively seeking burnout, even though we wouldn't say that and we're finding it. And one of the things that I love to work on with people is, you know, building that balance in their lives. Again, paradoxically, if they come in and work as their number one priority, then I definitely want to know how their family and friend relationships are. And similarly, if they come in and the one and only thing in their life is their marriage, then I want to know about their creative and their professional pursuits. So it's, it sounds like what you're talking about is maybe leading people, Nick, to explore more balance in their life, where, where if they're so myopically focused on making one aspect of their life, for lack of a better terminology, their entire world, as you said, whether that's work or their marriage or their kids and other things are imbalanced, is that sort of kind of maybe a cornerstone of, of what you see trying to support people with is finding balance? Is that how you would phrase it? That's my own terminology, but it sounds to me that's kind of, kind of maybe what you're trying to help people with. Well, I might steal that for myself. So if you see some quotables from you on my website in the next week or two, you're going to know that you helped me find a really concise way to talk about it. That is exactly, <laughs> exactly the thing that I'm talking about. And again, you know, there are some people that are really comfortable just being about one thing. Like if, if you ever know professional poker players, like the people that can really do that for a living are the people that spend 18 hours a day on it because they love it. And they read about it in forums all the time. That is how they want their life to be. And they're comfortable with that. But you know, the people that walk into a therapy office are walking in there because something doesn't feel right and something doesn't feel contented. So yeah, definitely finding the balance. I don't need to attend to the part of this that you're attending to every day. I need to shed a little light on the part of it that you're not dealing with at all. This is super interesting because for, for some reason, the first person that flashed in my mind, and this is somebody that, that Whitney and I kind of follow his career arc is Elon Musk. And a lot of the interesting articles that have come out about Elon over the past few years about his work ethic and how many hours he works and the drugs that he takes to keep going with work and some interesting analyses of his personality. And it makes me wonder that if, if someone perhaps on the outside by their, their friends or their family or associates could be labeled as a workaholic or labeled as a, you know, a narcissist, which I've read some interesting articles that that's something that gets mislabeled a lot in our society. It gets passed around a lot like, oh, you're a narcissist, but that people are actually misunderstanding what narcissism is. That might be like a completely separate question. But if someone has certain tendencies or ways of being pointed out by their friends, family, and associates, but they don't see anything wrong with it, like, okay, so maybe I am a workaholic, maybe I am a narcissist, but they actually don't see anything that's alarming about that. I guess my question is, for someone to come and seek therapy, would it be that they realize that you know something isn't working in their life? They're sad, they're unfulfilled, they're depressed, they're suicidal, they're imbalanced. But if someone's going through life, they could potentially have a bunch of people saying something, this isn't okay, like your relationships are fractured. And they're like, I don't care, I'm making a bunch of money and succeeding. I don't know that I have a specific question in this, but for some reason, Elon's the first person that popped in my mind where it seems like 
he's an archetype that people look up to because he's so valuable and he's created these amazing companies. But it seems that his personal relationships from the outside, we don't know, tend to suffer a little bit as a result of that. And I say this, you know, not knowing much about Elon Musk other than that he's a scientist and he made electric cars. But I know that he's very, very handsomely rewarded for that behavior and that lifestyle. And so it would take a real, a real need and a real act of courage on the part of somebody like that who does experience so much wealth from that and so much rewarding. You know, people fawn over him and they idolize him, right? And so if he were ultimately, so number one, that might really work for him, right? And workaholism, if that is his thing, is really insidious in that way. And that a lot of times people are really incentivized to indulge in it, right? But also, you know, in terms of the relationship with the self, if I'm the guy, if I'm the scientist that's sending people to Mars and making electric cars, and that's how I get my esteem, and that's how I'm known in the world, that's how I make my money, that's how I know myself, then what would it take for me to decide to do something different from that? You know, it would take a hell of an earth-shaking moment for that to happen. And so, in a lot of times, people's lives don't ever get disrupted to the point where they feel like they need to make those kind of changes. Sometimes it's really a blessing for people when their lives get disrupted to the point where they do have the opportunity to take a step back and look at those extremes in their lives. And so, again, not knowing Elon Musk, my guess is that the rewards for him are probably going to be great enough that he won't ever have a moment to have that, that occasion of, of self-examination. But who knows? There's something that Whitney and I have expressed on the podcast recently about what you touched on in the beginning, Nick, about burnout and both of us having challenges of really finding the energy and the will to do the things we've agreed to in life and, and run our business and show up for our relationships and a lot of the things that life has presented to us. In kind of a general sense, since you know Whitney and I are both going through our, our different versions of this, and, and Whitney, I'd love for you to jump in if you feel compelled on how you're feeling about the concept of burnout right now and where you're at with it. But to you, Nick, if someone is feeling burnt out, and I know this is obviously a nuanced, individualized thing, but generally speaking, where do people go from there? They realize they're burnt out. They realize they're, you know, we talked about this in a previous episode, feeling kind of like, you know, the crispy edges of the burnt toast at the bottom of the toaster oven. Where do people go if they've sort of reached this proverbial rock bottom? How do you emerge from a state of burnout? Well, you have to accept that what you're doing is a choice. And a lot of people really struggle with that. You know, we might have a lot of stories made up in our mind. I have to work. I have to work this hard. I have to take on this many clients. I have to accept this kind of abuse. And the truth is almost everything as an adult is negotiable. It might take sacrifice. It might be negotiating between two options that you don't like. But the first step is understanding that you are in charge and accepting your own agency in that. And so then once people realize that, yeah, I'm burned out because I'm choosing something that is burning me out, then we start playing around with, well, what are some changes we can make? Great and small, large and tiny. What are changes we can make that will offer you the opportunity to feel recharged? And then once you make that choice, what are you going to do instead? Because it can be awfully tempting, especially if we're, we're burned out to just you know go play video games for you know 40 hours or lay down on the couch or get stoned or whatever. And that's all fine, but ultimately it's not super nutritive. And we need those things in our lives that actually recharge us if we're going to deal with burnout. And then the last part is deciding to put a structure in place 
that allows you not to get burned out in the future. So it requires a lot of reconfiguration. But the good news is, you know, for the people that summon the courage to do it, the payoff is immense. What are the things that you think get in the way? Because you said a really important word, which I think is courage. And it's something that I struggle with right now in the sense that I know that there are specific changes that I'm on the precipice of making in my in my life and career. And, and in some ways, it's almost like, it's interesting, like life will sometimes make the changes for you versus you initiating the changes yourself. Ancient Greeks had a term called ketesis, which is like, life is ushering you to make changes. And if you don't make them yourself, life will impose those changes upon you through different situations or earth-shattering sort of life-changing events. For me, this, this concept of courage is interesting because I almost got chills when you said that because I realized that I've been kind of afraid to make certain changes in my life because I'm terrified of certain potential consequences on the other side of those choices. You know, but what if? What if the whole thing implodes? And what if I'm homeless? And what, <laughs> what if I have to give away all my animals? And my mind goes to these worst case scenarios. But what does courage mean to you? And especially in this context of making changes and, and emerging from burnout, like how do we cultivate courage? How, how do we practice that? Well, so there's a few ingredients and I, I want to get to that. But before I do with this notion of you're going to make these changes, or the world is going to make them for you. You know, there's an even worse scenario, which is that you're not going to make these changes and the world is not going to make them for you. And ultimately no change is going to happen. And I would like to liken it to, and I, I know you have a background in food, the difference between attending an event and getting tray pass or walking into the kitchen and cooking. If you attend an event and you eat whatever's on the tray pass, that's rad. You will get some delicious amuse-bouche. You'll try some things, right? But if you go into the kitchen and you rifle through the refrigerator and you get the ingredients out, you can make whatever you want. And that's sort of the analogy for choice here, right? Is that like, if you wait for the universe to hand you things, then the universe, you're going to only pick from those things. But if you take some charge of it, then you have, you know, many, many, many more options. Your second question, if I remember correctly, was how do you summon up that courage? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's, it just seems that it's sometimes in life, there can be a certain level of clarity of, okay, I know that my heart, my soul, life is pulling me toward this new chapter or new phase, but I'm terrified of it. And I don't know that if I can summon the courage to say yes to it and leave behind the, the old version of myself. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it seems that courage sometimes is positioned as like, no fear. Like I, rem I remember <laughs> in the 90s, there was that line of t-shirts, right? Like all the skateboarders and, and like extreme athletes were like, no fear and wearing the no t-shirts. Yeah. But does being fearless have anything to do with courage? No, I think, you know, being fearful is a pretty natural thing. I don't think that's something to pathologize or to criticize ourselves for, you know? The thing that you described, like, what if I'm homeless? I mean, that's extreme, but for some people that is a potential consequence and that's really scary. I think we all need to be connected to our support networks, right? So if you're thinking of taking a big risk, then I want you to be in contact with people who will be there to support you during that no matter what happens. Additionally, another thing that I say to clients all the time, because it's fucking true, is the status quo will always be there if you want to return to it. So anytime people are considering change, change is virtually always hard or it would happen automatically. And people are often afraid of, you know, what will it be like if I try this out? And sometimes it's things like, what will it be like if I, if I get rid of my depression? Like sometimes people want to hold on to really painful things. But the truth is, it will always be there for you if you want to return to it. You will always be able to go back to this lesser or less distinguished thing 
if you want to. And I think people forget that. I think you know, there's very few cases where you can't walk back towards that kind of thing. And then in addition to it, I think we need to reframe things in terms of really positive stuff. So rather than say like, you know, be fearless because you're spineless if you're afraid, you know, and if you're if you're trying to go into business with fear, then you're just chum in the water and the sharks are going to get you. I might say instead, yeah, this is super fucking scary. And some people fail at it and it's really hard and it will take a real act of courage for you to do this thing. So win, lose, or draw, maybe you have an opportunity to be a really courageous person today. The thing that comes up for me is a topic that Whitney and I have really dug into on recent episodes, which is this idea of chasing greatness. And a lot of the sort of messages we get and we see on social media about, you know, pursuing greatness and being your greatest self and constantly improving. And it almost seems to me that it ties into this idea of burnout and overworking of people wanting to, and I know I'm this way too, and and Whitney and I have discussed it offline of this constant pressure to be our greatest selves. And the one thing that we've been discussing is, well, what about just average? Like what's what's wrong with average of, okay, you know, I drive an average car, I, I got average grades, I make an average amount of money, I wear average clothing, whatever that means. It seems that I guess the the interweaving of the comparison trap and social media and digital media exposing us to this very curated sense of people living their greatest lives and hey, you ought to as well. Like you should be the greatest version of yourself. We're seeing for not only in our lives, Whitney and myself in our own versions, the dismantling of this pursuit of that for so many reasons. But in general, Nick, you know, and Whitney, I'd love for you to jump in whenever you feel compelled to on this subject. On a greater scale, pathologically speaking, people feeling so driven to be great all the time. What are the ripple effects that that you kind of see with that, Nick, if any, in, in people that you work with or or just in general on a societal level? Well, one of the heartbreaks about the social media thing is that we really confuse greatness with visibility. And those two really are not the same thing at all. We have a lot of confusion. We confuse greatness with physical attractiveness, with wealth. We confuse it with intelligence. We have all of these things that we conflate with actual just quality, you know, human quality. Um, and those things are all really good. If you have the opportunity to be visible and wealthy and smart and athletic and attractive, that's fantastic. But none of those things is the thing that makes you great. And so, yeah, I think I see a lot of people in my office, you know, and even in my field who experience this sense of like, am I enough? And even though we teach it in therapy school, the idea of being good enough, the good enough parent, the good enough therapist, I think a lot of us, even me sometimes really struggle to internalize that that's actually the thing to search for. It's not searching for being the greatest. It's not searching for being on a mountain where everyone is beneath you and you are on top. It's about being a part of an ecosystem. And the ecosystem has room for all kinds of creatures, whether they are enormous and flashy like whales, or whether they are small like plankton, or whether they are unknowable like sea cucumbers. <laughs> like It's really about being comfortable as a part of an ecosystem and accepting the other parts of that system as well. When we talk about this good enough thing, because it, if I look at my, for lack of a better terminology, kind of core trauma or negative belief system that I've been unraveling in my adult life was this idea of never being good enough. And I've talked about kind of tracing that back to my relationship with my father and feelings of abandonment and <laughs> how that affects my relationships as an adult. That's a whole 
giant ball of wax to crack open. But how do we assess that for ourselves? Like what what are, for lack of a better term, you know, what are the personal metrics that we can say, okay, well, if I've been chasing this idea of greatness and my idea of greatness has been, I don't know, making six figures or driving a Mercedes or living in an amazing house in Pasadena, <laughs> you know, whatever these sort of externalized success metrics are, when we're talking about what is good enough, how do we even start to assess what that means for us on an individual level? And I'm asking not just for the collective and for the listener to glean this, but for myself, because I still really struggle with what does good enough even mean? You know, if I, if I look around and I'm experiencing gratitude for, okay, I have a roof over my head, I have food every single day, I bathe in clean water, I have companionship, I have love, I'm relatively healthy. I guess my overall question is, what is good enough and how do we even assess that for ourselves? I mean, it's a hell of a question. I'm going to kind of shoot from the hip here, but my thought is, I think you need to have a long game and a short game running at all times. I think it's good to have dreams and hopes for the future. And if you want to own a house, that's terrific. And one day, hopefully that will be wonderful for you and you'll enjoy it. But you also will have a long period of life if you're starting from scratch that you'll have to live before that happens. And so I think it's good to know what's good enough for today, December 10th, 2020. And it's also good to know what you want in the future. And just spend some time in both of those spaces mentally, right? Like, this is what you do want to spend time in gratitude. This is what's great about today. This is what I have to thank past Nick for. Thank you, past Nick, for going to school in 2012, because now I have this wonderful practice that I love. That's amazing. And if it's the exact same practice when I'm 70, you know, maybe I'll be a little disappointed. You know, maybe I want to grow between now and then, but that doesn't take away from the fact that right now is great. So I think it's about understanding that you have a couple of different frameworks that you're looking at and then learning how to hold all those together. I was looking at some of those shirts that you brought up, Jason, the, the no fear shirts, because they gave me all this nostalgia. And um, I pulled them up on, on Google Image. And one of them says, no fear. If it were just about attitude, everyone would have it. And first of all, I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like everyone would have fear or everyone wouldn't have? Does that make immediate sense to either one of you, first of all? Every, everybody wouldn't have no fear, I think. Okay. is what, I think it's a double negative. Like if it were attitude, everybody wouldn't have no fear. I mean, that's my best guess. It's not right. totally coherent. No. Yeah. It's, an, it's interesting. <laughs> and then I think like, wow. I mean, in a way, this is interesting because I haven't thought about this before, but wearing those t-shirts was kind of like a precursor to what we see on social media with all of these like kind of cliche messaging that we keep seeing over and over and over again, all of these mentalities, all of these things that we pass through each other and, and encourage them to not have fear and make it seem like fear is such a, a bad thing. And and, I, and my heart kind of goes out because I feel like as a kid, and I'm, you guys could speak to this much more than me, the no fear shirts, I remember the boys wearing. I don't know if, if I immediately recall any woman, like any girl at my school wearing them, but maybe they did. It's not, it's not a gender thing per se, but I felt like it was something that a lot of men would wear or boys at that time, because that was a way of, of like proving their masculinity or reminding themselves and each other like, hey, like we got to 
go through life without fear. And, you know, we got to have these attitudes. And it was like this whole idea of being strong, which felt very appealing growing up. But then to some of the points that you've been making, then you start to think of fear as a bad thing. And I think that that has contributed to a lot of confusion and a lot of shame too, right? It's like, you feel ashamed if you have fear. You feel ashamed if you're not successful. You feel ashamed if you don't look a certain way because we're constantly being shown the, these messages about what a good life looks like or what a successful person is or what a strong person is. And, you know, we see it on t shirts, we see it on billboards, we see it in movies. I mean, there was actually a, a social media post I saw earlier today. And I think it might have been a tweet. And it was like, this is how male screenwriters represent women who are depressed. And it was like um, a picture of a girl like smoking a cigarette on the couch with a ton of like empty food containers around her. And I was looking at that thinking, gosh, like in so many ways, we receive this messaging that like, oh, you must be in a bad place in your life if you have empty food containers scattered around your home. But most of us have had empty food containers scattered around our home. And like, we start to feel all this shame, right? Like, oh my gosh, I must be struggling or I got to hide this. I can't let anybody see me this way. And so we end up kind of hiding elements of ourselves because the media or, you know, all these forms of messaging are telling us what is good and bad, what is right is wrong, what is strong versus weak. But a lot of these things are, are actually things that we all do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of the work that I do is with men. I, and I, I think it's really important to understand that, you know, with all people, but especially with men, we stigmatize fear and sadness. And so men learn from a very, very early age to turn that into anger and rage, because for some reason we can accept that from men in a way that we can't accept fear. And I even remember like the no fear letters are like written in like oh, jagged, like electric letters. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, a, it's an aggressive thing. It's like, and it's got the some eyes usually that look like like cartoon eyes that yeah. look like really menacing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like an invitation to fight. And so when you're working against, you know, so many years of that kind of conditioning, you know, and then you grow up and it's like, yeah, the world is a scary place, especially if you decide to take a risk and take up more space or if you decide to get ambitious or if you really want to go for something that's special or something that people tell you you can't have or that you have a family story that no one in this family can have this thing. It's really scary. And then, you know, you hide it, you know, hopefully you don't, but you know, a lot of people really hide that fear and it just festers. It's very sad. For me, one thing that I've been wanting to explore is the idea of cultivating more sensitivity and empathy with men. I remember on this very subject of of having these male archetypes growing up, of witnessing that the more aggressive you are and the more demonstrative you are, the more rewarded that you are. And, you know, aside from the sex, drugs, and violence, kind of that prototypical approach of growing up and observing that in in growing up in Detroit, not that Detroit fosters that, but just as as a backdrop, it was it was kind of a, a little bit of a hardcore situation from time to time. I remember at a very young age feeling so sensitive, and as a Cancerian, if you believe in astrology, I've just I've just always been a very empathic, sensitive man. And you know, I remember as a young man being so confused 
because it was like, oh, you're sensitive. That must mean you're gay. And people thinking that I was gay. And of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with whatever one's sexuality is. But I remember as at a young age being so confused, like, oh, if I if I'm sensitive and you know, I cry about this thing that I don't observe any other men in my family or my friends crying about. Like, why did, Why am I so upset or move, moved by this thing and no one else seems to be? And I think in, in my young adulthood, I started to look at archetypes of men that were, quote, successful, being in athletics or being in fields that I admired and being like, oh, they're rewarded for aggression. They're rewarded for domination. They're rewarded for a kind of, you know, a win at all costs type of attitude, not just in sports, but music and business and kind of the, I don't know, not the heroes, but the avatars I looked up to. I'm like, oh, there's some, there's some commonalities here. And I think for many years, what I started to do was go against my natural sensitivity, go against my natural emotiveness, go against my natural empathicness, because it was like, oh, not only are you going to be judged and shamed for being a sensitive man in the world, but you're not going to, quote, win because all the people you see winning that are men are in this idea of, you know, domination, subjugation, aggressiveness, push, push, push till you win and, you know, fuck it. Like it, winning is the only thing that matters. And I'm realizing now that if I embrace my natural kind of sensitivity and emotiveness, I'm starting to feel safe enough to express those things again in my life after being really shamed about it for a long time. I remember for many years, just people being, God, you're so sensitive. You know, like it was this negative thing. And now in my early 40s, I'm really starting to be like, yeah, I, I am super sensitive and I cry a lot and I feel things very deeply. And maybe instead of that being a negative thing or a deleterious thing, it's actually part of my power. It's taken a really long time to come back around to it, though. Yeah. I mean, it's it's working against, you know, decades of conditioning. You know, what you're saying really speaks to me. I remember as a kid, you know, fielding those sort of accusations of being gay too for being feeling. And I, of course, obviously, like you said, there's nothing wrong with being gay, but it wasn't being made as an actual an actual question about like, is this your sexuality? It was saying you're weak and this is my shorthand for how weak and effeminate you are. And as a, you know, in terms of people being rewarded for that kind of behavior, as a kid, I was bullied a lot and it was, you know, intensely painful and miserable. And I had a very specific time in high school where I figured out how to be the bully. And it was like an instant turnaround. Like it happened in one day. I started picking on this dude and, you know, gr gratefully I used my powers mostly for good, but I learned to be aggressive. And then I'll tell you, you know, it really paid off. I was very popular by the end of high school. And I think part of it was that I kind of learned to be aggressive and go on the attack with people and keep people on their heels. And that was something that took a lot of really intentional work personally and in therapy to walk back and sort of reaccess that part of me that, you know, that still has a sense of humor, but that wanted to draw people together and wanted to have rewarding, loving relationships with everybody rather than constantly feel like I was in a war zone trying to make sure that I was on the top of the hill and everybody else was at the bottom. This is particularly challenging, I think, in certain ways though, right? Because if you observe that you have a way of being in the world and you're consistently rewarded for it, even though it might be making people feel uncomfortable or putting people in extremely vulnerable situations or taking advantage of people, fracturing relationships, one of the most challenging things I would imagine is, you know, encountering someone who who may be like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to therapy or I'm gonna start really examining myself. But this thing I've been doing really, really works well and I've been rewarded for it. 
mentally, that seems like it would be kind of a challenging thing to unravel. Because on the one hand, maybe it's like, wow, you ostracize people or you fracture your relationships or you're so aggressive. But it's like, but look at all this success and money and worldly trappings that it's gotten me. Like, why should I change? And maybe that's a big question is there's been a lot of how do I how do I even say this articles and information around toxic masculinity, right? And and I've certainly done my my fair share of research and looking at that. But if someone is quote engaging in behavior that would be labeled as toxic masculinity, but it's working for them, why change? Well, and most of those people wouldn't come into my office because it because it is working. But for people who have something that's working for them and are examining change, I tell people that any credible tool belt has more than one tool in it. And so I'm never trying to take away a person's something that works for you unless it's really, really overtly harmful to other people. I'm more saying like, you've been tr- using this hammer on everything. Let's see what a wrench would do or a screwdriver would do. One of the analogies that I make to clients all the time is about professional arm wrestlers. And if you've ever seen them before, they're really physically interesting. They have one giant arm that looks like they're smuggling a a watermelon under their skin because that's their arm wrestling arm that they make their career with. And then they have one arm that's sort of more regular sized and proportionate to their body, right? And that's because they use that, you know, the right arm, let's say, for everything. That's their arm wrestling arm. That's their career arm. And then they have this other arm that relatively experiences neglect. And so I don't want to de-strengthen anybody's right arm. I want to build up their left arm. And in terms of shedding sort of toxic masculinity, I think that one of the things that I love to work with men on is that a lot of times men don't, aren't really raised to understand the effect that their actions and words have on other people. And that doesn't excuse it. But in terms of if we're in the business of change and we want to work against toxic masculinity, the way that at least it worked for me was having somebody get through to me about what it was like for them when I acted that way or what it was like when I spoke that way, and then also to believe them about that. And so I think that sometimes, you know, it can be helpful to hear it from a male therapist who has who has done that journey himself or is in the midst of doing that journey himself to sort of unpackage what it is like to be in relationship with you, what, you know, what the effect is that you have on other people, and also gaining some understanding on what other people's experiences are like because we normalize white male experience in this country and in this world. And so very often you come up thinking that your thing is normal and everybody else's thing is weird and exotic. So arm wrestling, so you're telling me that the Stallone movie Over the Top was not an accurate representation of that field? (laughs) <laughs> I've I've never seen that movie, but I know Sil- Sylvester Stallone is one of our na- great national treasures in terms of documenting. So my assumption is that one's probably right. I think the other ones are probably a little fantastical. <laughs> now, after this episode, I feel like I need to do a Google image search of like professional arm wrestlers because I, I'm now imagining this watermelon arm and like an arm that is kind of like mine, which is tends to be more, I don't know, what's the, what's the, is it ec- mesomorph, ectomorph? What's the person with long limbs? I, I don't know who that person is, but I would, I would call you an up-and-comer in arm I'm an wrestling. Up and com- That's what I'm I would say. I'm, I'm lefty now. I'm lefty. <laughs> I'm going left. This conversation around masculinity and relationship, it brings up for me something that I struggled with in different partnerships over the course of my life in the sense that I get confused by the messages because I want to be a, quote, good person in the sense that Sometimes I feel like I have really dropped into my sensitive feeling, I suppose one might say more feminine polarity 
in relationship, romantic relationships, but then had feedback from women at times saying like, you need to be more assertive. You need to be more aggressive. You need to be more this. And it's like, okay. And then, then I would kind of go over to that polarity and be like, you're being too aggressive and being like, okay, but when I was sensitive, it was too sensitive and now it's too aggressive. And I remember working with my therapist years ago and I kind of like vomited out this term to him. And I said, I think that I'm in terms of this energetic polarity in romance, I think I'm energetically androgynous in the sense that I feel like I can live in the assertive, dominating, very one point of focus, like this is going to get done. We're going to do this. You're, you know, this is the way it's going to be versus like open, receptive, sensitive feeling. And I feel like on both ends of those spectrums, I can feel very, very comfortable and very much like in my, I don't know, sovereignty. But it seems like if I live in one of those polarities too long, people get like weirded out by it. And my challenge has been like, okay, well, maybe then living somewhere in the middle of like, I can be sensitive and also aggressive when the, you know, the situation presents itself. I can be feeling and receptive and I can also be demonstrative and push for what I want. But in romance, that's been pretty tough for me because I think sometimes it's been confusing for me of like, well, which polarity do you want me to live in then? Yeah. Well, if somebody says to you, you're not being assertive enough, and then you sort of make that course correction and it's, oh, now it's too much. That makes me think that maybe it's not about you so much, Jason, (laughs) as the people that you're with. And one of the important things about building relationships that I talk to clients about all the time is that it's so tempting to try to be what other people want. And I think that that is a really mistaken approach. I think it's better to get accustomed and to get really informed on who you are And then to love that and find somebody else who loves that and see if you love them. I mean, we really start from this place of like, I'm going to look a certain way. I'm going to act a certain way. Like I'm going to download the formula for, you know, for what people want. And then that's so disappointing because there is no formula. People want all kinds of different things. And, you know, the worst thing that could happen to you is that you learn to play a role and then somebody really loves it. And then you're cast in that role for the rest of your life instead of being your true self. So I, strongly encourage people to get really firm in their own selves. And if that if that for you, Jason, is being in touch with your emotions and really experiencing things that way, I say lean into that because there's somebody that, you know, there's plenty of people that really love that and to whom that will be really important and they'll feel kinship with that. Nick, you have so many eloquent ways of answering these questions. And I'm I'm behind the scenes like typing out some quotables for you. I'm just thinking, gosh, like We should just listen to this episode anytime we need advice because you always have little snippets here and there about (laughs) any situation. I don't know if you're feeling that way too, Jason, but I think that what you just said, especially the part about being cast in a role. I mean, Jason, you've talked about how much you struggled with that uh, professionally and personally, right? Like just literally sometimes being typecast and how... Maybe it really isn't that hard. Maybe maybe it's not as constrained as we think it is. It's just to your point, Nick, we're so focused on the people that want us to be a certain way or have put us in a box where there's probably plenty of people that don't want us to be in that box or don't even care what box we're in. But I, I think culturally, a lot of us are conditioned to focus on the box. And it's like the older I get and the more I experiment, with the way that I live my life, I, I start to realize like, wow, there's so much to life outside of this box that I've put myself in. It, again, it's not even that other people put myself in there. It's like I climbed into the box where I thought I would get the most approval. 
And then like stepping out or peeking out over the ledge, metaphorically, you realize, oh, there's so many other boxes I could be in and they're all okay. Yeah, I, 100%. And to get a little political about it, the box is often somebody's way to make money. You know, every time you think you're fat, somebody sells a pair of jeans. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit like when you hear a bell ring, an angel gets its wings from It's a Wonderful Life. Every time you think you're too fat, somebody sells a pair of jeans. Every time you think that you're not good looking enough, somebody sells a cosmetic or some kind of, you know, ridiculous hair treatment. And not that our, you know, our physicality doesn't matter, but the amount of time that we spend conditioning it for some very amorphous ideal that someone has set out for the world at large, it's just wasted time. And ultimately it is designed to earn money for other people. And, you know, you probably, you know, your coaches, I'm sure you've had to say this to people. Part of finding the right people is grieving the wrong people. So, you know, if you really want to find true love, I think, you know, and as much as that really exists and is available, you really need to find it for your actual self, not for the, you know, the Instagram personality that you have cultivated. And that means accepting that there are going to be people that don't like your flavor of ice cream. I say that exact phrase all the time, Nick. <laughs> I love it. Seriously? Can oh, I steal it from you? No, no. I, I just, I, I love it because I often say that like, I think my ice cream flavor is like double fudge chocolate habanero brownie chunk with like sarsaparilla. Like it's a very like, whoa, what the hell is that? And it's definitely not everyone's flavor. And I've started to realize in this analogy, which I love that you you phrased it that way, that I, I say that all the time. I'm like, I know I'm not going to be most people's flavor, and that's okay. It's going to be that one at the ice cream shop. You're like, ooh, that's weird and interesting. Let's try that one. And I think I'm okay like being that flavor. You know, it's like the opposite. Not that there's anything wrong with vanilla, but I'm like, whatever the weird opposite other polarity of vanilla is. <laughs> I think I'm just like, yeah, I'm that. I'm I'm the weird guy with saffron and habanero. He's the anti-vanilla. Uh, anti-vanilla. Anti-vanilla. Which also gives you a peek into my sexual preferences. Hey, that's another conversation. To me, it's like this conversation about self-love that we're, we're kind of grazing on. It's in a way, to me sometimes, sort of a, a nebulous conversation. Like, okay, self-love. I need to love myself more. And I, I, even after all the things that Whitney and I do with our programs and, and teaching people enoughness and working on ourselves and and having been in the wellness industry as long as we have, you know, there are times where I'll sit by myself and I'm like, okay, so love myself more. Um, okay. It's not really about getting, you know, the new like vegan Hagen dazs and kind of doing a callback to what you were talking about, Whitney, with these uh, tired tropes of like the depressed woman in movies, but like, you know, self love. Okay. Go to a spa treatment and get a tub of Haagen-Dazs and, you know, I'll go get a foot massage and I'll, you know, cover myself in kittens, which are all great things. I love all those things. But I think what we're talking about is like a, a much deeper, more visceral sense of loving oneself. And I'm curious when, when you bring up self-love, Nick, and the cultivation or exploration of that, when maybe we've never been taught what even the hell that is growing up, where do we even start with that conversation of loving ourselves more? Well, I think the first thing that we have to do is weed out the stuff that we confuse with self-love. And like both of you have said, it's not gifts. It's not ice cream. Those things are lovely. 
And occasionally it might be an act of self-love and it's also not tuning out. We have tune out behaviors, um, you know, getting high, watching TV, that kind of stuff. Again, really satisfying, but not the kind of nutritive self-love thing. Self-love is an active process in the same way that loving another person is an active process. If you are in love and you are working on your relationship, this comes up all the time in couples counseling, then you are going to have the strength of your marriage is or your relationship is going to be directly commensurate with the amount of work and time and effort that you put into it. And that doesn't mean being perfect, but it means that you need to reflect on your partner, what you love about them, what makes you care about them, the stuff that's uh, imperfect, that's wonderful about them. If you are dating somebody and you buy them a pint of ice cream every day, but you never tell them that you love how funny they are or how beautiful they are, or any of the other wonderful things about them or how kind they are, then you probably really don't have much of a relationship. And so I think, you know, we have to, we have to, you know, get rid of the confusion around what looks like self-love, but is really actually just probably kind of commerce and zoning out. And then getting to the place where we really, and this is awkward. It's awkward like affirmations are awkward, which can be a part of it too. Is and getting to the place where we really admit out loud the things about ourselves that we love. And then we say that the way that we would to a partner that we just adored. Another element that this conversation is making me think about is kind of the forced self-love that we can see sometimes on on social media or in, in person as well. I think this is kind of cliche in cities like Los Angeles, especially because People tend to be very liberal and and perceived as being hippie or woo-woo. And it's like everybody's talking about how much they love each other, but do they really love each other or are they just saying that? Are they just doing the behaviors that they think mean love? Are they just doing the things that other people will perceive as them loving themselves? You know, you see this a lot on social media, especially with younger people who like want to prove to the world that they love themselves. They're like, I don't care what you think. Like, I love myself. So, this is how I'm showing up. But, like, sometimes I'll see posts and or see people talking, hear them talking. And I'll think to myself, gosh, there's a gut feeling I have that you don't actually mean these things. You're just saying them. Like, they're kind of empty or they feel superficial. Like, it's like this desire to prove to other people that you love yourself when the only person that cares if you love yourself is yourself. Right. But we culturally, like, are kind of obsessed with showcasing self-love. Yeah, well, and I mean that I think you hit the nail right on the head and if you're practicing self-love in an overt public way that requires an audience then ultimately you're not dealing with your relationship with yourself, you're dealing with your relationship with others. If I'm practicing self-love, it's probably a reasonably private act for me. If I show up here and tell you all all the things that I love about myself, then on some level I'm probably trying to get Whitney and Jason's you know, affection and affirmation too. And I think that th- I love that you brought up that sort of, I'm going to call it icky feeling in your stomach when you see these things that that appear to be on some level that kind of feel like the opposite of what they look like or they're advertised like. You know, that's one of the most important human instincts that we have. And paying attention to that instinct is really, really important. It's such an interesting framework of social media as a lens into people's state of being. And one thing that Whitney and I have talked about ad nauseum is is certainly our mutual desire, but my acute desire to take a break off of social media and see how that would affect my sense of who I am, my sense of self. 
because I feel that even though there's a, a reductionist aspect of the amount of time I've been spending, I've been reducing it. I, as an experiment, I'm really, really, really curious to see how my sense of self-worth and my sense of self-love would be affected by just being off of it completely for a period of time. And I'm curious if that's something you've personally done or it's something that you've advised your clients and the people you work with of like, hey, maybe you should just get the hell off of it for a period of time and see how you feel. How has that the relationship with social media or you know social media detoxing been interwoven into your life and in your in your practice? Well, you know, social media is so new, right? You know, human beings have been around for thousands of years and now suddenly in the last 20 we have this brand new thing that's changing everything, right? And the problem with it is that we really misuse and abuse it. If we used it correctly, social media would be a really wonderful joining you know, factor in our lives, right? Like we would use it to meet people that share our interests. We would use it to connect with people that we missed in high school who live 10 states away. For the, you know, the image-based ones, we would use it to catalog and chronicle our lives and all the lovely places that we've been and the things that we've eaten and we don't want to forget, right? We would be using that technology to commemorate our lives and our relationships with other people. And sometimes we do use that. But we also use it for stuff that's not real helpful. And the one that I'm guilty of a lot is just using it to zone out. Therapists have 10 minutes at the end of the hour built in for notes and for the bathroom and phone calls and that kind of thing. And fortunately, I often have some of that left over. But a lot of times I get, I just get on my phone and scroll around a little bit. And that doesn't really do anything other than let me tune out. Additionally, you know, we use it for stuff like advertising and that's fine. But if all of your life is advertising, then you're probably experiencing an imbalance of some kind. And so definitely, if you're one of the millions of people that is having this experience of like, I'm not sure I love how this is appearing in my life. I don't love social media. It's making me feel bad or the amount that I'm doing on it is making me feel bad or the content is making me feel bad or I'm getting into needless political arguments, which is another one I fall prey to all the time. Then Definitely, definitely, it's worth examining both the amount of time you spend on it, but also what you are using it for and getting really specific about what, uh, what your intentions and purposes are on it and then being disciplined about making sure you're just doing that. When you talk about what you kind of envision it optimally being used for, it kind of feels like at the beginning, that's what it was being used for. Like I, I remember being on meetup.com and going to meetings and potlucks and gatherings and meeting all kinds of new people like IRL completely in real life and how how huge meetup was like 15 20 years ago and remembering in the early days of say say MySpace you know to God almighty MySpace 2004 2005 you know yeah of meeting different musicians in my city and being like okay let, let's you know let's jam together let's get together and jam and sort of these foundational elements or even Facebook in the very, very beginning of uploading pictures of uh, my cousin's wedding or going to an anniversary party, a date with my girlfriend, and, and how, for lack of a better word, innocent it all seemed in the beginning. And I feel like in many ways, my... This is interesting. I'm kind of unraveling this in real time. The level of seriousness and the level of ego identification, and we have to use it to build our brand, and we have to use it to show everyone how amazing we are. I feel like in the beginning, at least if I recant you know, my experience with AOL, MySpace, Meetup, it didn't feel that way in the beginning. And at some point, it mutated into this massive juggernaut, the whole thing now, where 
I don't feel very much joy using it anymore, at least not compared to in, in the early days when it felt so exciting and so interesting and so like, oh my God, what is this? You mean I can meet different musicians and artists and people in, in my city that I've never met before? And I just feel like we're so far from maybe the original intention of why these things started. Yeah. And I'm curious, are you going to undertake that experiment? I would love to hear about what it goes like for you. It sounds like it's not particularly pleasant for you. You want to take a break? Yeah. I, well, I, ha- I mean, Whitney knows this. I have been wanting to take a break. And the reason I haven't taken a break yet is I've agreed to, you know, for not only our business and our brand, certain things that we're launching, we, we have this, you know, sort of these bundles we're doing and we, we had this great holiday giveaway and, and we have things we're doing where we're really, you know, wanting to give back to people. So it's almost like if I frame it like I'm going to use these tools to be generous and give use what we hope are useful things to other people. I do feel a little glimmer of joy in that, but overall in a macro sense, Nick, I really think that, you know, I know on a soul level, on a, not just a mental health level, but like almost like a soul exhaustion level, I know I need to take a break. And I almost in a way want to not recruit, that sounds so MLM-y and weird, <laughs> invite, that's a better word, invite other people who are feeling the same and maybe have like some sort of support group as an experiment of like, let's take 30 days or 60 days or whatever it is and make sure that we can be supportive with one another. Because knowing me and how the dopamine works, I feel like having accountability partners and having other people doing it with me in a group will probably be easier for me to stay committed to being off of it. Yeah, that seems eminently reasonable. You know, I also think, you know, so yeah, so you found yourself in a place where business-wise and mission-wise, it's integral to you to stay on it to some degree now. And I think that you also can do what I've had to tell people to do a lot with, you know, news and current events, which is to be really structured and disciplined about what you use it for and, and how long you use it. Because it's really important for us to be aware of current events, right? Especially, you know, in the last few years when there's been a lot of stuff going down, extra stuff going down, we've felt glued to it. And that's good, right? However, doing it 12 hours a day is not so good. Any amount of this sort of, you know, fire hose of bad news absorption that you do beyond what enables you to know what you need to know and equip you to be the person you want to be out in the world is really damaging and extraneous. And so one of the things that I had to start telling people to do is if you feel like you need to know current events, I support you in that. But then it has to be your second job. And what we do with jobs is we clock in and we clock out. And so if you're going to be you know, a part of the, the news cycle in this way, then you need to decide that, let's say, 9 to 9.30 a.m. every day is your, is your news time. And then after that, you can call your senator, you can write a letter, you can meditate, you can do whatever you need to do as the companion piece to that ingestion of current events. But then you have to clock out. You can't be a part of it for the rest of the day. You have to go actually attend to the other parts of your lives. And I'll tell you, not everyone has agreed to do that, but the ones that have have really felt much better. Okay. So this idea of like doom scrolling, which is the terminology that I I think we've seen passed around of, yeah, like there's disaster baiting and doom scrolling are the two terminologies I see to this. And and another one. I was disaster baiting long before the internet, sir. <laughs> <laughs> He's a master disaster baiter. <laughs> In this sense, though, of, of, and I guess, yeah, for all of us, you know, th- this, because I doom scroll, I fucking doom scroll, and I, I catch myself doing it. I'm like, what, dude? Do you need to be looking at the statistics of coronavirus every single day? Do you need to be looking at 
whether or not the government's going to all give us more money and are we going to get another, you know, check in the mail or I mean, there's a gazillion examples. I mean, I don't even want to get there was a horrible thing I clicked on the other day. And I remember clicking on it be like, why? Why are you clicking on this story? It was just it was a horrific story about a guy like killing his family. I'm like, what, dude, why are you exposing yourself to this? You don't need to be clicking on this. And I'm curious, like, what is the fascination with doom scrolling? What are we trying to glean from it or get from it? And and also kind of as an offshoot, I didn't even know this terminology till like maybe like nine, 10 months ago of hate following. Like someone's like, oh yeah, I'm hate following so-and-so. I'm like, what's hate following? They're like, oh, I'm following this person on Instagram because I, I kind of despise them and I just kind of want to see what, what they're up to so I can hate them more. I was like, ugh, what the hell is all this about? <laughs> it's psychologically rich, isn't it? Deeply so. That's why I'm bringing it up for the three of us. Yeah. What are the mechanisms underneath something like doom scrolling, disaster baiting, and hate following? Well, so the the doom scrolling one is a really interesting thing. And I don't, you know, I think plenty of people are (laughs) aware of it, but many, many more people are not, which is that human beings are so tremendously uncomfortable with the unknown that they would rather hear and internalize a very painful truth then cope with the feeling of being not able to know something or being not able to control something. And so I think this is how conspiracy theories get their legs too, is that there are people who feel out of control and out of touch and feel like they don't know what's going on in the world or what's going on around them. And it's far easier for them to internalize this notion that there's a, you know, a pedophilia operation taking place in the basement of a pizza parlor than it is for them to, to sort of internalize the fact that they don't know and that they're really scared. Like that amount of control helps counteract these feelings of fear that we have. And I think hate following, you know, and as a separate topic, you know, we self healthy self-esteem is believing that you're of exactly equal value to everyone else in the world. And that means everybody. That means your podcast co-host, your podcast guest, the president, the homeless person you passed on your way in, everybody, you are of equal value to those people. But when we go into self-esteem failure, we go one down, right? And that's a really painful place to be, to feel like we're not good enough, we're bad, to feel that kind of shame. And so what a lot of us do is we go one up, which is a little grandiose. So that says like, hey, maybe I'm sort of unconsciously not feeling great about myself, but at least I'm not a fucking lunatic like Alex Jones. Now, the upside to that is it's really good that you're not a lunatic like Alex Jones. But the bad news is that you're creating this false and really fleeting sense of self-esteem by holding yourself up against other people who you see as beneath yourself. And that's a really sad and sort of self-perpetuating rhythm for people to get into. So for people that find themselves hate-following, I would prescribe not hate-following. I would unhate-follow everybody. I would find one or two people that you can love-follow. And then I would look really hard at yourself to see the part of you that's really hurting. Oh, that's good advice. It's really good advice. And to be like full transparency, um, this, this wasn't necessarily... Uh, uh, well, I guess it was kind of in the genre of hate follow, but yesterday I clicked on on an article talking about the unraveling of Johnny Depp's career, and I I was observing myself being so like emotionally invested in reading about you know Johnny Depp sabotaging his career, and I'm like, what? You have nothing against Johnny Depp? He's never done. It. You've actually enjoyed his work, particularly his early stuff with Tim Burton. Like, why why are you? We, like I have no emotional charge or investment around Johnny Depp, yet here I am scrolling through this detailed, sordid, long article about Johnny Depp's career and his, his emotional aptitude and how he's destroyed things and how he took eight pills of ecstasy and, and 
cost Disney $350,000 a day because of the delay of shooting. And I was like, wow, he took eight. And the part about it was like, wow, how could anyone handle eight ecstasy pills at once? Yeah, that's impressive on a different level. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was like, one or one is good. One is good. How do you do eight? But, you know, we we talk so much about self-awareness here, and I have to take accountability and ownership over my own unconscious behavior. But but also the point of like realizing that like, why are you, it's almost like gossipy almost like, and, and I'm not really into, you know, reading gossipy feeds or gossipy columns or anything. Whitney and I talk about gossip in some earlier episodes and, and the effect that has on relationships and ourselves. But, you know, just as an example, this, this Johnny Depp article, I was like, uh, this feels weird. Why am I so invested in the demise of this man's career? Am I trying to make myself feel better right now? Am I like, ha ha, the mighty have fallen, even you, Johnny Depp are going to find your day, your day of destiny, where you fall too. It's like, ugh. Even you, Edward Scissorhands. You know, yeah, it's, it's like, <laughs> there was just this part of me, I have to laugh of just like, ugh. Like, and not judging myself with the ugh, but like, do you really want to be spending time in your day doing this? No, you do not. Stop reading it. So, Well, except there's a part of you that really does want to do that. And that's the part I want to get in touch with. And I don't want to shame him. I want just to know like, okay, so what is the part of you that is feeling good reading about Johnny Depp's career disintegrating? And is it a part of you that feels sad or feels not enough or, you know, needs consolation, right? Rather than to like, you know, just in the interest of sort of self-understanding rather than to say like, you know, cut it out. I'd rather say like, what is the part of this that's really serving you? And can we serve you in a different way? That doesn't require somebody's career to flame out spectacularly in order to do it. It's interesting, Nick. I mean, I think I think on the one hand, because I I tend to not click on those kind of articles, as I mentioned, I don't see that as a as a pattern of like, ooh, I'm going to seek out articles where you know talking about how how horrifically people failed. Like that's that's not something that I find myself doing. I think, hmm, just a casual disaster baiter. I'm a casual, yeah, exactly. I'm very casual disaster. <laughs> I think with with this particular article, it was like, I think the headline is what got me about the eight pills of ecstasy and costing Disney all this money, and I was like, ooh, sure, drugs and expensive things. This is you're you're drawing me in, headline writer. But then beyond that, it was almost like we've talked about uh, on this podcast. I think the society's tendency to want to encourage people to pursue these extreme levels of, as we've talked about in this episode, wealth, privilege, fame, influence. But then we also celebrate their demise, not necessarily their physical demise, but like, oh, haha, you fucked up, famous person. Now we're going to observe your flame out and, and like celebrate that too. But then they come back, right? Usually people come back and they were like, yay, we're celebrating their comeback. And I think maybe I'm I'm kind of in alignment with that weird semi-schizophrenic thing of like, yay, we celebrate this person. Oh, yeah, see, you're not perfect either. You act like you're this perfect person, but you're not. You're human like us and you fuck up too. Oh, but here they are with their comeback. Yay, we love you. And I don't know, maybe maybe I'm subject to that bizarre framework of celebrating someone but then celebrating the fact that they're not this perfected thing like, oh, yeah, you're human. You bleed too. You bleed too. But then they come back and it's like, okay, good for you. Yeah, you came back from it. I I mean, I think most of us to almost all of us are subject to that kind of thing. And because, you know, news and social media often shows, you know, whereas, you know, you folks and me, we all live in our B-roll, you know, every day is a 24 hour long, 
you know, journey with a lot of, you know, stuckness and challenge and unremarkable, not photogenic work. And so I think it's it feels really good to get on somebody else's roller coaster for a little while and see the big ups and downs rather than the sort of little daily struggle that often can feel kind of stuck. In the spirit of getting uncomfortable, I want to bring up a subject that I think has a lot of contentiousness in the sort of health and wellness world, at least in some of the conversations and, and circles that Whitney and I have, have found ourselves in, is, is the concept of uh, pharmaceuticals for mental health, specifically SSRIs. And you know, on, on the one end of the spectrum, we've been sort of exposed to, to different people that have been like, okay, under no circumstances should you take an, an SSRI. There are all these, quote, more natural treatments to deal with one's mental health. And then there are other people that are like, no, 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 by all means, like if, if one needs to be prescribed pharmaceuticals and take SSRIs, you know, do it. And I, I'm, I'm curious in, in your research, how you find the benefit of prescribing something like an SSRI, if you even do in your practice, and where you kind of fall in this, I suppose, spectrum, Nick, of, of holistic therapies, as they would be maybe generally classified, versus a more pharmaceutical approach to helping people with their mental health. It's a super, super complex issue. To be perfectly clear within the ethical guidelines of my field, I am not an MD and so I don't prescribe medication to anybody and it's outside of my scope of practice. I do oftentimes refer people to psychiatrists or LPNs to, to get prescriptions for their, you know, for their mental health. I don't have any reservations about suggesting that people visit a, a credible doctor to try that stuff out. I think it's not for everybody. And I don't have any disrespect for anybody that doesn't want to do it. But to me, I liken it a little bit to automobiles, by which I mean to say that I can get anywhere I need to get without an automobile, right? Like I live in Pasadena. Even if I needed to get to Santa Monica, I could walk there. But I don't walk there because it's 2020 and I have access to a car. And so I think it's a little bit like that with medication. You know, Very few people need it, but very many people can benefit from it. In terms of the less evidence-based treatments that people use instead of psychiatric medicine, I'm always a little skeptical of those because they are often not subjected to the kind of rigorous research that psychiatric meds are. Um, and I also think that that industry is really ripe for abuse. And a lot of people, I think, really are abused by it, whether they're buying snake oil or doing really dangerous you know, home procedures and stuff like that. And so I'm always a little wary around that. That being said, with that caveat, Psychology as a field is very, very, very new. We are in the barber field, you know, the barber era of psychologists, you know, like where people used to, and I'm, I'm a marriage and family therapist, not a psychologist, but, you know, 600 years ago, medicine was like, yeah, we'll try to let some blood out of it. And, uh, you know, then we'll burn some hair and we'll see, you know, whether you feel better. And it was pretty medieval and they were kind of doing what they could to make it work. And psychology is much that way too. You know, a lot of what I do is really grateful that you all have found the, the ways that I've put things to be elegant. What I'm really trying to do is find frameworks for people to lead their lives in more content and satisfied ways. And that is a little made up too. So I don't necessarily have total support or antipathy one way or the other. I guess I'm willing to try anything that doesn't pose a direct threat to anybody, whether it's my client or someone in their orbit. In my notion, it's what makes you feel the best and turns you into the, the version of yourself that is most in line with your values. You use the words contentment and was it satisfaction? That sounds right. 
Yeah. Contentment, satisfaction. Interesting you didn't use the word happiness because in, in my personal cosmology, I feel like that, that word is something that is grossly overused in terms of a pursuit of. I mean, yes. it's right there in the Constitution, okay? But uh-huh. much like sorrow or suffering, I don't feel that happiness is a sustainable state of being. And so interesting that you use contentment and I think satisfaction or fulfillment, because to me, though the energy of those words and the meaning of those words feel more not attainable, but sustainable than trying to be happy all of the time. And I observed myself in the past, like, why am I not happy all the time? And and talking to friends that are like, why am I not happy all the time? And it's like, maybe we not ought not aim for happiness all the fucking time. A hundred percent. And I appreciate that you picked up on that because it's deliberate. I am really conservative about the times that I use the word happy because it's misleading in this way. What people think of as happiness, I think, is really joy. And joy is really fleeting. And it, it's kind of like if, hap- if contentment is the sex, then joy is the orgasm, right? And you don't want to live your life having a sustained orgasm all the time. It's really not, not very good. Um, <laughs> and Right? Like it's, it's officially not so good for you. So I use that word contentment because I find that that's actually a sustainable, enjoyable, attainable quality of life that people can have. And remember, that a good life has sadness in it. A good life has obstacles in it. If you play Super Mario Brothers and there are no holes for you to fall into and no turtles and no you know fireball-breathing plants, it's a boring game. You're just playing Run, Mario, Run for the rest of your life. You know, People who have everything and have no problems are miserable. So it's not about saying why, you know, uh, lamenting the obstacles in your life or thinking that everything could or should go perfect. It's about having a life where, you know, the obstacles hopefully make you stronger and where hopefully you're surrounded by uh, people that you love and who love you back. And that's that to me is the simplest form of contentment. Gosh, you just have nonstop uh, quotables. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm just I've been so called exhausting. <laughs> you're actually remind me a bit of Jason in this sense, because you can share these, these eloquent phrases. Jason's really good at, at quoting other people. And he'll just like pull out these inspirational quotes out of nowhere. And I'm like, how often are you rehearsing this? And it's really impressive, Nick. And, and just listening to you is so comforting and, and helpful. And I'm actually really looking forward to putting together our social media post for this episode, because I feel like you're just sharing so much that's going to resonate with people. And, you know, I'm one of those people that that loves reading quotes on Instagram. <laughs> like, that's one of my favorite things to look at. Sometimes they're even like basic things that I've heard before, but I just like hearing it. And so listening to you on this episode has kind of been a version of that. And I'm really appreciative of that. Well, thank you. That makes me feel really good. On my Instagram, I look to look at uh, pictures of no fear t-shirts and just really super um, toxically masculine fashion trends of yesteryear. So I'm glad that there's an Instagram <laughs> for each of us to follow out there. That, okay. is, a, that is a great callback. And um, you know, <laughs> it, it is funny that it's like, I guess one thing that before we wrap today that that I don't know if we fully touched upon is this idea of not having shame like let's just say you did enjoy looking at that type of images you know it's it's so easy to to say like oh my gosh like you're 
you're hypocritical. And like, I can't believe that you did that. Like, I guess it goes back to that uh, image that I referred to earlier, which, which came from the Queen's Gambit Netflix show of like how we portray women in the media, even in 2020, like as being like, their lives are a mess because their their homes are a mess or whatever it is, right? And it's it we can get so judgmental about what people are are not into. And and I loved what you said to Jason about not necessarily being like trying to correct yourself, like, oh my gosh, why am I reading this article? And I've done a lot of that in my life, not so much recently, but definitely when I was younger. And I noticed so many other people doing the same thing. It's like we call things guilty pleasures or we feel embarrassed to share things. But I actually really look forward to people sharing these things about themselves and try not to judge them for it. And even I'm in the practice, which is kind of challenging for me going back to what I was saying earlier about like getting a bad gut feeling when I see certain things online. One of the reasons that I like reading quotes is it it's like, it's kind of hard to go wrong. Like looking at a nice quote, it's it's either a black and white or it's on a you know, peaceful background, like the <laughs> mountains or water or something. You're like, wow, this is so soothing. And then I can often feel the exact opposite if, if I see like a really macho guy flexing his muscles or a really in-shape girl. And then I'll, I'll start to think about my life in comparison to her and what she looks like. But I actually need to get in the process constantly of not judging somebody like if they want to post those pictures of themselves who am i to say that that's right or wrong good or bad or oh since i don't like this then that's not a good thing for anybody right like going back to the box uh the metaphor as well and it happened to me today i i clicked on somebody's instagram account and I immediately was like ugh like i don't like these photos she's posting of herself they don't make me feel good and i had to catch myself and realize you know what? Like this works for her for whatever reason. And that's okay. It's okay that I don't like it. It's okay. I'm not going to follow somebody like that. But maybe other people really enjoy looking at her pictures. Like who am I to to say that my opinion on her account is right or wrong? You know, so as funny as it might be and, and as a joke, Nick, I think it is also important to to remind ourselves like there's nothing wrong if you want to wear a no fear t-shirt like yeah. maybe that thing you know or maybe you do like looking at those pictures like guilty pleasure or not like why do we even have to feel guilt around it yeah i think that's so great if you're asking you need to ask yourself not you whitney but you the people at large need to ask themselves what am i guilty for like what have i done here and if the answer is you know, I'm watching junk food entertainment. That's great. Enjoy it. Lean into junk food entertainment and love it. You know, or or if you're really feeling that oppressive guilt, then don't bother with it. Like if you're actually violating one of your values by enjoying that, then, you know, maybe you want to take a break from it. But otherwise, you know, geez, we only get to be here for a certain amount of time. You know, enjoy that stuff. And then to your piece about looking at other people's Instagram feeds or whatever, you know, I, I have a little thing that I'm sort of toying with right now which is that you know i think we get raised to think of things as so competitive and it's you know so zero sum and if whitney and jason's podcast is successful then my podcast can't be successful or i won't be enough unless i'm ahead of everybody in the world and what i think we can be better off doing is like actually success for anybody um that i either like or that i don't know is great and i celebrate that and so i've really been toying with like just saying good for them like if I pass a, a post and my initial thing is to experience some kind of contempt or scorn 
because it draws something up in me. Or if I think, oh, that's needless and stupid. Like, why in the world is this person bragging about that? I'm really focusing on conditioning myself to say, good for them. Because the truth is, if their life gets better, even in some tiny little butterfly effect kind of way, my life is going to get better too. Well, one question that I have for for you, Nick, and, and Jason as well, if there's something that you haven't shared on this podcast yet. Nick, what have you perceived as a guilty pleasure for yourself? Like, you know, it doesn't have to be defined as a guilty pleasure, but if somebody asked you, and I guess this is me asking you, like, what is your guilty pleasure or one of them right now? Well, so I, I'll tell you, this is actually a guilty pleasure. And maybe this is worth examining because this might not be within my value set. But something that I loved for years, it's not on anymore, was that show Blind Date. Do you remember that? I know that From about 20 years ago, it was this terrible show where they would get these people and I think they really screened them to see if maybe they weren't okay. And then they would put them in these date situations and then they would ply them with alcohol and then, you know, use, put up these pop-ups that were just, you know, sort of like pop-up video style making fun of people all the time. And let me tell you that for a while in my life as a younger person, that was the light of my life was watching these people. (laughs) you know, get drunk and sabotage their own dates. And it had like a formula. They would either say like, you know, they would do these interviews with like, what kind of person you're looking for. And so if you said, I'm really into tall women, then they would either pair you up with the smallest or the tallest person that ever existed, right? Like they really went extreme with it one way or the other. And then again, they'd get these people super, super drunk. And so that is a show that has provided me with hours and hours and hours of laughs over the years. But I also have to think about it. And I think like, well, on what level am I watching people get victimized on television? You know, these people are doing potentially physical damage to themselves, damage to their reputations, you know, and experiencing humiliation because maybe they had an optimistic hope that this show was going to provide them with love or sex or fame or something like that. So I mean, I honestly, I'm glad you asked the question because I hadn't examined it until this moment. But like, that's a thing where maybe that's an actual guilty pleasure. Maybe it's worth me examining whether I want to do that or not. Now, a less guilty pleasure is I like to bake. And one of my guilty pleasures that I don't feel very guilty for is that sometimes I just have to eat it all myself. You know, I make these killer pies, I make cookies, um, and sometimes I am called upon to be the one that consumes all of it. And while I might feel inclined to feel some guilt around that, I resist it wholeheartedly. Oh, I love that. It's interesting. I'm reflecting on on what my guilty pleasures are. And I guess it's so fascinating during COVID because I, I think a lot of us have been a little bit more lenient. Like, hey, we're in a pandemic. It's okay. You know, for the first few months, I, I was one of those uh, many people that was playing the Animal Crossing game on Nintendo. And so good. And I, it's really good. And I actually think um, it's very therapeutic because it's a very soothing game. So it made sense why people were drawn and the timing couldn't have been better. I I don't think Nintendo knew that the pandemic was going to happen, but it was like perfectly timed. And I would just spend hours and hours a day playing that game. And part of what was interesting about that was at the time, I I would judge myself sometimes. I would spend hours and I'd think like, oh my gosh, like I really should be working, you know? And we recently uh, recorded an episode about shoulds, right? So I here I was shoulding myself. And in reality, it wasn't that big of a deal. And it was a really intense time for us emotionally. And then I got out of that phase. I haven't played that game in months. Like there's nothing right or wrong about playing it. But that phase passed for me. And that was a nice thing to notice. And of all types of guilty pleasure, I feel like that one was pretty benign. 
But and maybe me, helpful, honestly, like that might have actually been a really wonderful piece of self care. Oh, I think so too. And I, it a lot, a lot was uh, written about that game and, and spoken about too. And I, actually, there's a podcast episode when I was first playing, and I definitely mentioned it in our episode with Chris Gillibo because I was like nervous at that time to admit it out loud. Like I felt embarrassed about it, you know, but also simultaneously realizing that so many other people were playing it, like I felt okay. And that's always interesting too. Like we often will feel like it's more acceptable if we know we're not alone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse. My current, I would say, a uh, quote, guilty pleasure is watching TikTok videos. And it was really interesting because the other day I participated in like a, a little like blackout that, that some creators did to be off the app for an entire day because uh, they were kind of protesting for... I think there's a bigger issue of of certain accounts being suppressed and some people think that it might have to do with people of color and you know there's a lot of issues with platforms uh like TikTok for that reason. So I thought okay, you know, I want to be supportive, I want to be a good ally. I'm going to go off the app on this day. And it was really fascinating noticing that every time I went to my phone I was like gosh, I really want to be on TikTok right now and like what else am I going to do? And <laughs> Like, I don't feel stimulated by Instagram anymore. I don't really enjoy YouTube. Like, TikTok is really the only platform I find pleasure in at the moment. And so it was fascinating to be off of it because then I ended up not spending as much time on my phone. And I actually deleted the app from my phone so I wouldn't feel tempted. I didn't even want that ability to go click on it during that day. And then when the day was over, I re downloaded it. And I remember the first time I used it after that. Just one day. It's not like it was a super long period of time. <laughs> I actually even had a moment of like, eh, I don't know if this is that great. Like, I didn't, I felt really excited about having access to it again. But then I realized, you know, I could go longer without this for sure. And maybe if I did, I would spend less time on it. But it's just kind of that interesting balance because that's the app I go to. That's the thing earlier, Nick, when you said like for therapists, like you have that 10 minute window and you could kind of do whatever you want or write notes or whatever. That's what I do when I need a break from work. I'll just go lie in the bed or the couch or sometimes sit at my desk and just be on TikTok. And I really find a lot of pleasure in it. But people like Jason, you know... <laughs> He, he's on the receiving end of me forwarding him endless amounts of videos. And he has a completely <laughs> different relationship with TikTok where it doesn't appeal to him. And it's always so interesting having that outside perspective of someone like Jason, who he enjoys the videos I send him, but he doesn't feel as into TikTok as me. So sometimes that helps me like recognize that it's it's not like that important to life to to be entertained by social media, right? Like there's so much more going on and there's so many things that people find pleasure in, which leads me to asking Jason, what would you say your current quote guilty pleasure is? Hmm. Interesting question, Wit. Three things come to mind. I'm eating a lot of bread. I tend to not necessarily be like, I don't even know, like there there are we're all kind of obsessed with food. I feel like culturally, like we, we've fetishized food to such a degree. And with good reason, food is amazing. Speaking here, here. As, as a chef, right? Like, I mean, it's, I love food, but I've never really been like necessarily the person who was like, bread, give me all the bread. I appreciate bread. But lately, 
I think I have been discovering so many wonderful uh, bread companies through my girlfriend, Laura. She was working at the the West Hollywood Farmer's Market and, and there would be these new bread vendors that would come in and she's like, I got this new unicorn sourdough. I'm like, what in the hell is a unicorn sourdough? And apparently it's this company in LA that makes sourdough and they dye the bread with natural colors and they make it green and blue and red. And, and so at last, unicorn sourdough, right? We needed it. We, my God, we have it. So, so I will, I will, I will send you guys the link when I ask her what the name of the brand is, but unicorn sourdough. And then there's this amazing gluten-free shop in, in, in Santa Monica she told me about. And so we had to get the focaccia. And suddenly my freezer is now a bread graveyard. I have more loaves than I know what to do with. Like we've got loaves till 2022. Like I have so much bread. So bread is probably the first one, uh, just eating a metric fuck ton of bread. And what is the other thing? I think I have been indulging in a lot of uh, Star Wars content because I am a big fan of The Mandalorian. I'm a hardcore Star Wars geek, and I'm getting into fan theory videos. And after I watch it, I want to see analysis of the episode. And I've also started to go down the road of, and Whitney and I actually talked about doing this last year. We didn't do it, but re-watching all of the Star Wars movies, which there are 11. Yeah, there's a three. Yeah, there's 11 total. So what I want to do is I want to watch all of the damn Star Wars movies. The guilt in it, in the pleasure, is my mind goes, yeah, but dude, that's like, that's like 78 hours of movie watching. Do you know what else you could be doing with those 78 hours, you lazy fuck? Don't do it. Don't do it. But then my heart is like, but do it because your inner child wants to watch the Star Wars movies and oppressive, overworking adult. Jason, we hear your input, but we're not going to listen to it because we're going to watch the damn movies. So it's an inner conflict. So basically, it's bread and Star Wars are my guilty pleasures right now. Well, I appreciate you feeding your inner child more than um, just bread. Is it okay if I ask each of you some questions real quick? Yeah. Okay. Two things stuck out to me that I want to get your input on. I'm given to understand that both of you are into vegan cuisine. Is that correct? Nah. What gave that away? <laughs> a little birdie told me. I had a PI go out. It was that fine line between research and stalking. And we just went full into stalking. So I am not a vegan person, as it happens, although I've had some really wonderful vegan experiences in the past. And one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the stuff, at least that's been put in front of me, is often sort of geared towards imitating something that exists in meat or animal product form, which is fine. Um, I really enjoy seitan a lot. But it occurs to me that I haven't really tried much yet that is just native to vegan cooking, right? That isn't vegan cooking attempting to emulate something that exists elsewhere in the world as a meat or animal product dish. And so I wanted to check in, like, are there any things that like that just emerged from veganism that are awesome, you know, as a person who likes to cook on a very experimental and amateur level. Is there anything that I really need to try from that canon? Gosh, I mean, we could do a whole episode on this. I'm trying to think of a quick answer. I mean, I love tempeh. If you haven't tried that yet, um, it's not really trying to emulate anything because it's it's just wonderful soy. And so I think similar to seitan, because I am gluten-free, Tempeh is usually my go-to, even though soy doesn't make me feel that great either. The wonderful thing about tempeh is it's fermented and a little bit easier to digest and it can absorb all sorts of amazing flavors. So that's the first answer off the top of my head. What's yours, Jason? 
I mean, I think Nick in general, making vegetables taste amazing because I don't lean on a lot of mock meats or or meat substitutes. I just, I'm not really into them. I just love the flavors and textures and colors of, you know, fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes. Spices and sauces are really what I think make vegetable cooking exceptional. There's an actually an amazing company here in LA called The Spice Station. I'll, uh, I'll send you a link to. I mean, unbelievable. Yes, please. Unbelievable world-class spices from Morocco, Japan, South Africa. So spices and sauces are the realm that I think you can just take an ordinary quote-unquote set of vegetables and make it absolutely extraordinary. So happy to email you some resources. And yes, also, please. really quickly, the one restaurant that comes to mind that is really good in Los Angeles that doesn't use any mock meats, but they really highlight fantastic vegetable cooking is a restaurant called Nick's on Beverly. Nick's on Beverly. Just outstanding vegetables, and they don't use any of like the, the quote-unquote mock meats or fake stuff. Oh, I love this. I can't, I'm going to hold you to that. I need those links. Okay, here's my other last question before we go. So as you may or may not know, I, you know I'm aware of both of you all and your coaching work. And coaching is a place that therapists often find themselves later on in their career. Like it's, a, it's one of those careers that therapists transition to. And I think, and I've generally heard that one of the reasons that we do that a lot of times is because we really want to tell people what to do. And a lot of therapy is really actively avoiding telling people what to do and sort of helping them find their way to the thing that they need to do. And so I think for a lot of therapists, at least viewing it from the outside, coaching feels like an opportunity to stop asking like, okay, well, what's the childhood mechanism that's getting in the way and really finally offer some real directives, right? So my question for you is, in your coaching work, do you ever just want to like dig into the childhood trauma that's, that's keeping people from accomplishing their goals? Do you ever just like want to stop the, the, like the, the forward progress and say like, tell me about your father? Yes, all the time. And actually, Jason and I have talked about how sometimes we have thought about either in an alternate universe or maybe somewhere in the future about being therapists or working more in therapy because each of us are fascinated by psychology and have studied it. And I sometimes wonder, did I go down the wrong path? Like, should I have been a therapist? You know, like, I think that the style of coaching that I do, and I believe Jason as well, does integrate a lot of these things that you're talking about. Of course, we just have to be mindful that because we're not medical professionals, there are certain things that we can and cannot do or say. But I, I don't think that there's anything harm in digging into these deeper things with people because it's generally helpful in getting to the root of why something is challenging. Like, you know, there's so much within us that might cause us to exhibit certain behavior or resist certain things. So I certainly do that whenever I can. And I, I think the same thing is true with Jason as well. And I loved listening to you share all of these things, Nick. Like it's it's so inspiring. And there's so many different ways to coach. You can be certified or you can simply do it from your intuition if if that works for you and your clients. And I'm sure the same thing is true as a therapist. Like there's so many avenues and so many approaches. And that's part of the reason we do this podcast is we get to learn from people like you and hear your perspectives and offer this up because we don't have all the answers, you know, and we're very open about that. We struggle with a lot of the same things that our listeners and our clients struggle with. And we're not ever trying to say, we've got it all figured out. Here are the answers. Here's the blueprint. Like, no, this is an ongoing journey of discovery. I'm dedicated to educating myself and humbling myself when I learn something that I didn't know or do th something differently. 
And I think that's such a wonderful question that you've asked, Nick, because it shows that all of us, all three of us, and and most people in general are just constantly evolving and reconsidering things. And we're very, very grateful to have you on the show. And I'm looking forward to going back. I even made notes of like certain parts of this episode that I'm going to go back and listen to, and especially to turn them into quotes. So for the listener, you can find the entire transcript of this episode in our show notes. If you want to reread anything, it's at wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can also go to our Instagram, spelled the same way, at wellevator. And that's where we'll post some of these wonderful quotes and attribute them to Nick, of course. And you can check out his account. I love your account, especially your captions, Nick. I really enjoy reading them through. They're just as thoughtful as you are verbally. So we'll link to Nick's Instagram and his website and and anything else that we've discussed today will include some of the images like the no fear t-shirts and the and that <laughs> yes, uh, double down the queen's gambit reference that i had earlier and everything really is in the show notes uh, it's easy to share with other people and if we're ever missing anything feel free to send us an email at hello@wellevator.com at thank you again so much nick this has just been a really wonderful joy filled episode i love that you emphasize joy and uh, we're just we're grateful because this episode's coming out at the beginning of a new year. And I think it's a really important thing to listen to. Well, it was an utter pleasure for me. Thank you both for being willing to have me on here. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.